it is absolutely necessary that students know about how we came to be who we are as a discipline. Um, why certain languages are taught. Why certain texts receive more attention than others. Whose Buddhist canon that we're talking about here? And welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Dr. Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Rongdao Lai, Assistant Professor of Chinese Religions in the School of Religious Studies at McGill University, who also has a joint appointment with the Department of East Asian Studies. This episode is called Living Religion in the Classroom, Teaching Chinese Buddhism. This interview was recorded in February 2020 just before we went into lockdown and before this whole COVID-19 pandemic changed all our lives. So Rongdao and I were pretty focused on talking about in-person teaching. She was in town for a Numata lecture on her research. When I sat down with Rongdao, I was really interested in asking about her complicated relationship as a professor and a nun in Quebec, a province where tacitly new and what some of us call racist laws have emerged in recent years. For those of you unfamiliar with Quebecois politics, this was us referring to a recently at that time passed Bill 21 in Quebec. This is a bill aimed at ensuring secularism, the separation of church and state, and a component of which was banning visible conspicuous displays of religious symbols worn by public workers. It elicited some justified public outcry, but stands nonetheless. We moved from there to the topic of what it was important for Rongdao to teach her students in her sometimes very large classes. And we got into the complicated but commonly held problem that many of our students often have this kind of culturally formed preconception that Buddhism is a philosophy and not a religion. And we heard from Rongdao about what she sees as the importance of really showing and teaching Buddhism as a still living religion. Some strategies she used to do this, visiting temples, watching videos, and really centering still unfolding and changing Buddhist groups today, taking them seriously, and working with graduate students as well to make sure they understand and problematize the canon of what has counted, what has been the focus in the academic study of Buddhism so far, which is ultimately a fairly young academic discipline and really centering new things. Now, if you're just joining us on this podcast, maybe this is the first episode you've heard, welcome. And please listen, follow, and subscribe. We have quite a few wonderful episodes already out. So please share and tell people about this project. And enjoy my conversation with Rongdao. My name is Rongdao Lai. I teach in the School of Religious Studies and also the Department of East Asian Studies uh, at McGill University in Montreal. Can you tell us just a little bit about the landscape? Who are your students at McGill? What are their interests when they come to your classes? Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I teach... Um, courses on Buddhism, Chinese religions, um, and Asian studies, uh, you know, like broadly defined. Um, so this has only been my second semester back at McGill because I actually also did my PhD at McGill. I'm still learning right, about, about uh, uh, the program um, and also the School of Religious Studies itself has gone through a major 
transition um, that I'm not going to spend time talking about in recent years. It opens up, you know, all sort of possibilities and interesting um, uh, opportunities. But at the same time, uh, I think, you know, this is also a, a period of change and reimagination um, for both in the institution that I'm currently at and also uh, myself as a teacher. So, and take us back a little bit to your own biography. Um, what, so where did you begin your study of Buddhism? How did you get drawn out of that engineering building and into classes about, about Buddhism? I, I, I have a background in science. And uh, so, and for the first, what, 19 years of my life, I really wasn't that interested in religion or Buddhism per se. And, uh, and I'm only going to perhaps, you know, tell, keep the long story very short and tell you that, uh, and that changed one day. Um, and, uh, I decided that, uh, I was going to practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so this is the, what the tender age of 20 or something. 1920, 19, yeah. yeah, you know, the rebellious tenor age of just wanting to be, wanting to do something different, I think. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, instead of, uh, um, I think going all the way through and getting, you know, getting a bachelor degrees and master's and PhD, um, you know, um, I actually went on a little bit of a detour um, and um, I was ordained mm-hmm. um, and spent um, quite a number of years uh practicing or getting trained um, at a temple mm-hmm. before I re-emerged um, and um, thought that uh, I would go back to university, but this time around finish my you know university degree in religious studies. And of course, you know, that in and by itself was a huge change. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But what an interesting lens you must have brought to it too. So you're so you're an ordained nun mm-hmm. in a Chinese Buddhist order. What's, yes, in what, the in the Chinese tradition. In the Chinese tradition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, what has that been like? Matching or being teaching in an academic setting while also being an ordained monastic. What does that mean? How does how do, is it difficult to reconcile those two things? Have there been moments of I don't know, in yourself, confusion or discomfort around those things? Or has it been straightforward and easy? I, <laughs> I, feel often, like I often jokingly, well, again, you know, you can imagine how I, I get, how often I get asked this sure, question. Sure. And, uh, and my favorite way to answer that is that uh, it's actually much easier to do it mm-hmm. than to convince people that it is doable and that, you know, so, so, so anyway, yeah. um, um, Several things happening at the same time here. Um, looking the way I do, walking into a classroom, it does. It it definitely gives you, in most cases, um, almost automatically a very friendly audience. Uh-huh. You walk into a classroom, your student sees you, and they go, "Oh, here's a Buddhist," right? And yeah. often, you know, here's a here's a real Buddhist who's practicing. So, so, so that uh, can be thought of as a blessing, I would say. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you also get all sort of assumptions and ideals and ideas about Buddhism or expectations yeah. um, projected onto you. Of course. Um, and, you know, which is not always conducive to 
what you would like happen in yeah. a university classroom. And since we're in a podcast and our listeners probably can't see us right now, unless they have magical powers <laughs> or they're looking at our website. Um, how do you look? How do you, can you describe yourself? What do you think your students see when you walk into a classroom? Well, okay. So I teach in Quebec, mm. which has recently passed a law um, banning conspicuous religious symbol. Bill 21. Bill 21. So, and again, it doesn't apply to you know, university professors, but I often do think about these things and wonder if my bald head, for example, is a conspicuous religious symbol. Um, so, and other than that, you know, I mean, I look like others walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, right. I mean, so, so especially when you're teaching a, a, a course on Buddhism and when students don't just come in to learn about Buddhism, but co- come in already, you know, with whatever ideas about Buddhism that they're already, they already have either from maybe a cultural or heritage background, you know, that, you know, my parents, my grandparents practice Buddhism with this shrine at home and I just want to learn more about it or I do mindfulness mm-hmm. and I see that you have this course on modern Buddhism and modern Buddhism is all about turning like, you know, scientific, rational, non-superstitious Buddhism, isn't it? So you give all these assumptions that, that students, uh, uh, you know, come to class with, which again, you know, I mean, I don't see so much as a problem um, or even like challenge to uh, uh, how I would teach about Buddhism, um, but opportunities for conversations. Yeah. Um, so, so, and again, you know, um, however, these ideas were constructed in the process of Buddhism being constructed as a world religion itself, or, you know, how the field of Buddhist studies, you know, went through all these changes and what kind of decisions were made um, in deciding what we do and don't study and so on and so forth. I mean, just, I mean, of course they all have part, I think, to do with um, how these ideas came to be, but nonetheless, you know, you have students walking into your class already, in most cases, very interested in Buddhism and wanting to learn more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's role play for a second. I'm an undergraduate student in your class and we're in week, I don't know, three. (laughs) We're comfortable enough to know each other now a bit. Um, And I say to you, no, but I've heard that Buddhism isn't really a religion at all. Buddhism is just rational and scientific and Buddhism is actually a philosophy. It's a philosophy of mind. You can't, it's not called, it's not even really a religion. What would you, how would you want to respond to that student? Yes. So, so again, I mean, I think, I think that is, uh, in fact, very real, right? Those of us who, you know, have been teaching Buddhism long enough know that you get these questions or comment almost all the time, probably every time you, t- you, you teach a course on Buddhism. In my own teaching, I really do think a lot about voice and inclusion, um, also in relation to this larger discipline um, that we call Buddhist studies. What, think of the decisions that we have to make in teaching either an intro section or an entire intro course on Buddhism. What are the kind of decisions that go into informing what is it, quote unquote, core Buddhism that we 
would like students to walk away with? Why do we always start with the four know. noble truths? Yeah, yeah. And why does it always have to be followed by the eight four paths and the, you know, like because the that's how our textbooks are written. And, and that's, <laughs> that, that's why textbooks are written, right? Yeah. And and so when when I think about voice and inclusion, you know, I also wanted, so on the one hand, students are curious. And, you know, those questions, you know, yeah. for example, Buddhism is a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's not really a religion and so on and so forth. Really opens up. Right. I mean, yeah. The door for but us so, to what talk would you about. actually say to a student? So, let's open that door. So, I, I, it's not a religion. Why are we? It's, it shouldn't even be taught in religious studies. It's not a religion at all. It's just mm. a philosophy. It's different than all the other religions. It's, it's not actually one of them at all. So, instead of taking on the students, often yeah. I would deflect. Believe it or not, you know? yeah. Because if you look around the room long enough, you will see that someone will start shaking their heads. And, you know, these students either have had already taken a course on like the theory and method of religious studies and so on and so forth, who would disagree with such claim, right? Or you have someone who grew up in a cultural, you know, environment in which, of course, Buddhism is very much a religion and they would come up with, you know, their own argument as to why this is a religion. Mm -hmm. So so to me, I think in, in inclusion, you know, uh, or, or voice includes like really kind of creating this classroom environment where students can talk about these critical ideas instead of saying, I mean, definitively whether yeah. it is or it is not a religion. And uh, so, so, I mean, again, as much as I would, I mean, I think in a way we all you know, have this privilege of, you know, or at least we, you know, a lot of us enjoy having, you know, to be in, to be in this position of authority and say, I do have the final say in class, right? But then very, very often, I find that uh, students can actually learn from one another a lot more Absolutely. than we are, uh, you know, acknowledging. That when, when you empower your students to speak their minds, when you give them the tools and the language and the confidence to, you know, really make an argument um, and be able to, you know, present and deliver that argument and engage in, Again, you know, a very reasonable, informed discussion. Um, I think that kind of a learning process is not just important, I think, um, to students, but is refreshing and amazing for me as the teacher as well, you know, Absolutely. every time going yeah. into the classroom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, like, how do you build a classroom environment that mm. brings people out who don't, who maybe are nervous and don't want to talk in groups or you know, aren't sure and confident in their ideas. What, what do you, what are some things that you feel you can do to build a kind of classroom culture where that conversation is going to be possible? Mm -hmm. Well, I find that, uh, I mean, again, I mean, uh, in educational psychology, you know, you probably have theories about how long does it actually take for students to be willing to kind of like let their guards down and, you know, come up with the cover. But, but to me, it actually takes much shorter. You walk into class, you look around the room, you give your, I don't know, you know, first 15, 20 minutes of lecture and students actually, I find, make up their mind much faster than we are admitting, right? So, so, so again, I think it, a lot of it has to do with gesture, right? Do you, mm -hmm. are you, do you really send signals to your students that you are here not just to teach to them, but also to listen to them? And a lot of it has to do with the tone of your voice. Do you look around? Do you make eye contact? And do you pause? I, I pause probably way too much. 
Um, <laughs> you know, every, I mean, at, at least every time, you know, I finish explaining, say, an important terms or an important concept, very often I would look around the room and say, you know, and ask if students have questions. And of course, you got to allow that, what, you know, three, five seconds when, of course, no one had questions because everyone is just too shy and too nervous or feels too intimidated to say something, you know. And, and, and if you let that kind of, I think, you know, tension builds up a little bit as well, um, eventually, you know. They, they, so and there's, someone would open up. And if you do that exercise enough, I find, you know, um, which is really beneficial to, you know, having um, real conversation. And of course, class size matters, you know, granted that it's much easier to have a conversation with, what, 15, 20, even 35, 40 students. How do you do that in a classroom with 150 students? Um, so I think I find that, you know, something at the institutional level is actually not conducive to creating, um, say, an inclusive and, and encouraging, you know, environment for students to um, chip in. Um, and, and it, it, yeah. Have you ever had to do those big classes? Have you ever had to do I've those? I've always had to do big classes. Oh, those 150 student classes that's in your I think the largest that I've ever toolbox? taught is like, 200 or 250. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so again, right. I mean, one thing um, about and those teaching are what, Buddhism. Intro to, intro to Asian religions. Intro, intro to, to Buddhism. Intro to intro, Buddhism. I also teach a lot of courses on Chinese religions, mm -hmm. not just Chinese uh, uh, Buddhism per se. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Taoism, Confucianism, what's in the, what is in a well, Chinese religion? courses? How about Christianity and Islam? Christianity and Islam. So, so it. again, yeah. right. I mean, the yeah. first, the first thing to, I think, either define myself or as I usually like to do, get students to define is that what makes something Chinese? Yeah. I mean, if Christianity has been in China for over a thousand years, does that make, you know, Christianity a Chinese religion? And also, um, I mean, it, we, we uh, talk a bit about, um, I think the creation or the invention of this category religion and, 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 and um, how Buddhism became um, you know, throughout in you know in the nineteenth century, um, constructed right as as a religious tradition. Well, the same thing can be said about Taoism and Confucianism, and uh, so then of course you know in a very in a very um, I think conventional for lack of a better word uh, setting, you walk into a class uh, when you sign up for a Chinese religions class, you expect to see Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, mm -hmm. right? And, and I you think, blow them but, away by saying that's not what we're going to do. Well, but most Chinese do not identify, the majority of Chinese do not exclusively identify with one tradition or another. And so what do you do, right? So it's just like the question that you asked earlier about Buddhism being a religion and being a philosophy and a way of life, but not a religion. And how hard it is to overcome, you know, such assumption. I think it takes, you know, all it takes is a few trip. Yeah. yeah. Or a documentary. It goes, how about it now? Right. Yeah. And of course, uh, you always find that they, 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 you know, there will always be this kind of like resistance and say, again, right. I mean, hundred, you know, centuries of colonialism is really sort of, you know, baked this into our very idea of how should a religion look like as well. Right. Mm -hmm. That students would then naturally say, oh, no, these, that is culture. Right. And then I think within the field of Buddhist studies, even in terms of deciding what we research and how we publish. And how we identify ourselves as scholars of Buddhist studies, you have all these, I think, you know, baggage of the history of the field um, 
written into who we are as well. No question, into the questions we ask, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, uh, of course, uh, then you know this this assumption that you have the the greater or the great Buddhist tradition, which is doctrine and text base, and then everything else that people do on the ground on the ground. And how do you help your students to appreciate and you know and and to be very sensitive of this fact that. Buddhism is a living religion. We're not just teaching something which is an artifact from the past. And, you know, you walk around Bloor streets and, you know, you encounter people who live their Buddhism on a daily basis. And so, so, and so, so to me, how to teach again, you know, responsibly, you know, as a scholar, as a, as a, as a uh, professor about a religion that, that is a living tradition that, you know, millions and millions of people in the world still draw, right, meaning for their lives from. I think it's important to, I mean, speaking of inclusion and, and, and voice, it's also important to show this is how people live their Buddhism. Yeah. And in our study of Buddhism, that, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that we should, you know, privilege one kind, one approach, you know, over others. But I think this aspect of Buddhism being a lived and a living religion we, we, I still find that we're not doing enough in that sense in, 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 in showing students that, look, you don't even have to go to Asia to find Buddhists. Yeah. Huh? So what do you do? Do you take them on field trips? Do you make sure you take your students? I, to, I do make sure yeah. that I take students. Yeah. On where do you, field where trips. do you, where give me an example. Give me so, an example of something so, you've done. Um, I think like say for, for you guys in Toronto, for example, um, Toronto is an incredibly diverse and multicultural city that I think when it comes time to, take your students on a field trip, you probably would have a hard time deciding which temple is it. And you probably have, you know, like a good rotation, right? Uh, 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 of, of a set of temples that you could probably go to. Uh, well, the, similar things can be said about Montreal, but at the same time, uh, uh, um, um, the, we have far fewer huh? mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, compared to, to Toronto. Um, so we do have this uh, big Taiwanese Buddhist um, temple called the Fogongshan Temple in Toronto, uh, in, in, in Montreal. Montreal. Yeah. yeah. And there then you guys have something in Toronto yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the Vietnamese community has had a, quite a few very, very interesting and active temples. So, um, you know, again, I think we don't always have to send our students to Asia to see no. that Buddhism is part of Canadian life. Yeah. But so walk me through how do you use the field trip as part of your course content? I mean, do you have an assignment built around it or, and what do you ask them to do when they go to the temple? Are you going in a group or do they go on their own? Oh, we often go in a group. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, I mean, again, um, for those who are like interested in further exploring maybe other religious sites, they can always uh, take up this, um, say, research project that they can, they can like, you know, visit a, a, a temple and then maybe, you know, write um, a report or a paper. Um, but the kind of field trip that I, that I often uh, organize um, are group visits. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and of course, sometimes the, the monks and the nuns at the temple would be like kind enough to offer like a guided tour where they explain the iconography and, you know, they would explain the ritual and so on and so forth. But I actually ask my students to just go in there and do as everyone does. So if the service is going to last two hours please, you know, you expect that, go in there and participate, right? When you have to chant, for instance, the diamond sutra, 
Um, um, yeah, but Fogon Shan at least has yes. those ones written out in phonetics yes. for you at the back. So but you, then, you know, yeah. when you have to chant like the Heart Sutra, you know, like five different times, you know, during the service, then, you know, students will come back and tell me that you're right. It's a religion, whatever your category, whatever your definition mm. for a religion is, right? So, yes, um, you know, I mean, the philosophy and the doctrinal aspect of it is equally fascinating. But then, you know, I mean, it, it, it's very important for, for us to acknowledge that, uh, to show that side of it to students that, hey, people do things. People treat text as an object for devotion and ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, Not just a repository of content. People copy yeah. the hearts to try yeah. and wear it on themselves. How yeah. about, how about, how about, you know, understanding that aspect of it, you know, then maybe, you know, um, trying to analyze and explain away emptiness in sure. the heart sutra. And then how do you use videos or documentaries in class? You mentioned that that is an example. Are, is that mm-hmm. something you do? You also show kind of lived religion in other contexts yes. through documentaries or video? Yes. Uh, I mean, in terms of um, uh, multimedia though, um, again, um, I have to uh, perhaps kind of make this confession <laughs> that uh, I am a minimalist when it comes to teaching technology. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you use PowerPoint? I use PowerPoints minimally mm. because I actually find that, I mean, what does it take? Um, for a good teacher to deliver a good lecture. Maybe a white or a blackboard, you know, a bunch of um, very attentive students and a teacher who's there wanting to engage in a good conversation. Um, So again, you know, there are times when you really want to show a passage that you want students to be able to kind of like really focus on and maybe think about, you know. So there are times when I would put, you know, text and my PowerPoint slide, my PowerPoint slides. But other than that, every time I use my PowerPoint is perhaps just to show a picture. Like I say, you know, I mean, not necessarily a, always a video or a documentary, but here's a picture of a shrine. Here's a picture of people going on pilgrimage. Here's a picture of women um, attending to um, their family um, shrine and, you know, making offering to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, but other than that, I am pretty minimal when yeah. it comes to technology. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, maybe in the future, students will be hearing your podcast <laughs> as, as part of, of, part of yeah, class. Yeah, this is another media. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, so are there any, are there any documentaries or videos though that you've really liked that you've used in class or I've, I've used, um, I mean, it's super dated now, but I've used the Marathon Monks of Mount Hiei. You heard of that ah. one? It's set in Japan. Uh-huh. Um, it's so I have monks I, running around the, yes. the that incredible marathon circuit that ends with the big fast, and students find it. It really kind of confounds them because it's mm. such a different, you know, version of Buddhism than what they were expecting. It's so corporal and physical, and yeah. Mm. So I use um, that one. What about I yeah. have a I have a favorite mm-hmm. that every time when I have to say you know give a lecture about text as a devotional object. I like to show this segment uh, as part of a larger uh, movie, um, Japanese one. Um, and uh, the, so the story is called Kaidan. 
um, you know, I mean, uh, so in which uh, the uh, the Heart Sutra is more or less just like written over, you know, all over the body of a person to to protect that person from being haunted. So it's a horror movie, right? So so uh, I could probably send a link, Ooh, or, you know, whatever. A Japanese uh, horror movie. You uh, show uh, I think uh, the resource made in the sixties. Anyway, uh-huh. so so you know, I mean, these I mean, these are all interesting instances when you can show your students that. This is how people do Buddhism, right? I really like the idea of talking mm-hmm. about, you know, religion. So um, in that clip, it's something that yeah. people do, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And, and this is how people engage with, again, you know, a text which is philosophically supposed, you know, supposed to be like so central, um, you know, to say the Mahayana tradition. But yet at the same time, you chant the Heart Sutra um, for protection. You copy it all over your body so that the ghost can't see you. <laughs> Um, you know, you wear it, you know, in the talisman so that uh, it will protect you from harm. And I think to me, you know, teaching these aspects of Buddhist practice, um, it's very, it, I mean, it's very important in, in, in my teaching about Buddhism. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Wonderful. So you're showing them that people still actively negotiate and use Buddhism in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that we are not, you know, um, in a position to judge. I think you know, I, I find that sometimes students have the tendency to uh, come to, again, students are usually very open-minded right? and, 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 and they're willing to learn and to listen. But often, you know, you also find that if, 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 you, if you allow them, right, um, they would just like, you know, rush to a conclusion and say, all right, I get this. But they're, you know, these are rituals. These are like superstitions. And, you know, whereas real Buddhism has no place for superstition. And this is when you explain, right? And then what, you know, over a century and a half of campaign, even within, you know, the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist traditions themselves to really stamped out, you know, these quote unquote superstitious practices. So in other words, the, the, the war on, um, I would say, you know, rituals and so on. Um, did not just happen, uh, I think, you know, in, 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 in uh, the academic discourse on Buddhism, uh, you know, so, uh, and hence, I think it, we're doubly responsible then, you know, I mean, as scholars to teach about these things at a university classroom so that students don't run around having that, you know, like colonial and puritanical um, understanding of Buddhism and, and, and just telling people that what isn't is not Buddhism. And I also, you know, do not want, for instance, heritage students, but, you know, students who grew up in a, say, culturally Buddhist household to go home and say, mom and dad, that is not Buddhism that you're doing there, right? So, so, so in other words, I mean. Though, I mean, I'm sure you have heard that, right? I've also heard students say, mm-hmm. oh, my parents are Buddhist, but what they do isn't real Buddhism. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and again, right? I mean, so then certainly there's this like tension you know, in between your students who are a bit sometimes embarrassed, right? I mean, about say the the their own kind of like you know cultural Buddhist practice, and the kind of like inherently racist assumption as well, right? In mm-hmm. in defining and accepting what is then is not Buddhism, and on the other hand, you have you know people who have done like mindfulness, and you know who would tell you that it is absolutely not a religion, and so on and so forth. And then sometimes you know that tension. You know, it's there on the first day of class. But then again, this tension doesn't have to be 
um, I think, uh, destructive because this tension is also an opportunity um, to really have a conversation about, like I say, um, not just the field, but how we understand the world around us and our place in it and also others' place, um, you know, in this world that we share with, with everyone. Mm-hmm. 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 So is there, what's a like kind of big concept or that informs your teaching that, or that you want students to be able to, to remember afterwards? What do you hope that they take away from your teaching? Mm. Um, that is a very, very good question. Um, I was just speaking with a colleagues, well, actually a, a graduate students uh, the other day about how, if you teach a big introductory course on Asian religions or, you know, Buddhism or whatnot, you know, um, you know, you usually end up with say a lot of science students, engineering students, um, you know, students from the business school and so on. And yes, they might be there for like the, the, uh, uh, elective credits, right. That they need to graduate, which to me, you know, um, it's totally fine. Um, but if you think of how this is probably the one or two, like only course in the humanities that the students would ever take, you know, in his or her university careers, seriously, that is an amazing opportunity to really introduce something interesting and enlightening even, right? Um, mm-hmm. That students will take with them like years after they graduate. And coming back to this, uh, the, the more immediate question itself, um, I'm a social historian. So, and, and both in my own research work and in my teaching, maybe I repeat that too many times. And uh, I always want to make sure that students understand that conversations, discourse, commentaries, doctrinal interpretations, and so on and so forth, do not emerge in vacuum. That there's a reason why people are having the kind of conversation that they did in a written text, in a social context, um, and so on and so forth. So, so, and, and, and to me, it is extremely important that we are very, very, very sensitive and mindful, um, and of course critical, right, of, of, of the kind of social, cultural context in which many, many, many conversations emerge. Um, so, so um, very, very, I think at the very heart of my teaching, it is, is this idea that everything has to be contextualized. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why people are having the kind of discussion um, that they did. And uh, so, so it is as important to know about the context as it is about the content um, itself. Right. Right. So maybe even that student who's coming to your class with that, you know, Buddhism is a philosophy, not a religion. Totally. The important question is, why do you think that? Yes. And what's the context that has produced that in your mind as the the idea? And and this would like open the door for like, you know, and I would say a very meaningful conversation on, you know, secular modernity and, you know, colonialism that produced this idea that, you know, Buddhism is not a religion. So, so very central to my, to my, um, pedagogy, right, or, or, or to 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 my uh, teaching is this idea that Buddhist throughout history 
whatever you know time period that you know we focus on or we specialize in, want to be able to draw meaning from their own engagement yeah. with their tradition, be it at the ritual level, be it at the textual level, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, to me, the most fascinating part of studying, say, you know, the history of Buddhism in 20th century China is to continue to discover the creativity, the kind of passion, the kind of uh, uh, devotion, right, that Buddhists show in wanting to make not just their religious tradition meaningful, but to, to, to draw meaning from their religious traditions in order um, to face with whatever challenges, you know, that they have in their life and so on and so forth. Then, you know, in terms of teaching, I think that contextualization um, should always be taken into consideration. I mean, students often um, come into class being, already have this like presupposition about how Buddhism is a philosophy, right? So, and then, you know, you want to do, you know, majamika, you want to do emptiness, you want to read the text and so on and so forth. And then, you know, as soon as when you, but, but, but to me, good, we can do all that, but let's talk about why Nagarjuna wrote the way he did and, and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And then are there any, so beginner things like in your intro to intro courses, are there any concepts like Buddhist concepts that you really love sharing with students? Cause I know, like, I mean, I think there's for students who don't know much or don't have a lot of assumptions yet actually just teaching about like bodhicitta, the idea that we all have the potential for enlightenment. I mean, if you, if you share that with, you know, young, hungry, potentially lost 18 year olds, Mm -hmm. is there kind of a potential huge power there of. Yes. Yes. And, and I find that, I mean, I I think we, we have to give students a lot more credit than that because I think a lot of the, the students, at least, you know, from my own experience, um, already know a lot about these amazing, inspiring, powerful concept in Buddhism, mm-hmm. non-duality, emptiness, um, you know, um, uh, and, and, you know, either bodhicitta or Buddha nature, this ability or this potential, right, um, um, that we all have, which makes us all equal um, and so on. Um, so, and then of course, uh, you know, for, for us, for me as teacher, then, you know, that my, my job is to really help them, like I say, you know, unpack and contextualize, but I do have, um, a kind of mantra that I do, um, usually at the beginning of every Buddhism class, um, I would look around at students and go, if you have to learn a few things about Buddhism that you don't already know, um, when you sign up for this class. Um, which is that number one, the Buddhist tradition talks about suffering a lot, a whole lot, probably more than you can handle, right? And to explain, I think the whole idea of dukkha and why is it? Because I really think that that is, again, you know, important in thinking about, you know, all these later doctrinal uh, developments, right? And, uh, and, you know, and at the same time, we kind of, you know, like, humorous and, 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 and in saying that, and here's another thing that you probably should walk out of this class, you know, having in mind that, which is that the majority of Buddhists in the world probably don't meditate as much as you would like them to. 
<laughs> to kind of like debunk, right? I mean, some of these conceptions or misconceptions that, that people have. And I think, you know, I mean, teaching is about constructing and deconstructing. You got to take down certain things before you can rebuild, you know, others. And uh, so, so to me, you know, I mean, it continued to be a very, very rewarding journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering, are you willing to share with us how other nuns in your order talk to you about your role, this dual role as a professor or a teacher? Is this, I mean, this must be unusual, difficult terrain sometimes. I come from a very, very small, relatively conservative nuns only mm-hmm. order. And of course, you know, order in the Chinese Buddhist case is probably not the right word to use. Um, so the only support that I got in pursuit of my graduate training, for example, was that no one stopped me. Then to this day, I don't think anyone has a clue what I do. And, and again, I mean, I have the most loving nuns within the order and they, 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 they love me unconditionally. I don't think they get it and I don't think they care, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. And in their mind, it's just like, okay, so she'll do this thing for however, however, however many years she wants. But eventually she's going to come back and be a Dharma teacher. <laughs> so Exactly. You'll come back, publish a bunch for them or, and be a good, no, the no, best even Dharma that, teacher. You know, no. you just like, um, you, you, you just come back and take over and be a Dharma teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, your rebellious phase will pass, <laughs> something like that. I did want to take the chance to talk to you also about graduate teaching. What do you think is important as we train graduate students in Buddhist studies? Um, Or what, and by converse, what are things that we shouldn't repeat as patterns that have been a bit established sometimes? I, at the graduate level, I teach. So I, I, as someone who specializes in the modern period, I mean, of course I, you know, teach a lot um, uh, of modern Buddhism. Um, but because of my um, appointment, institutional appointment, I also teach a lot of courses in the pre-modern period, whether it's the, the Chinese religious traditions or Buddhism. Um, and regardless of what time period or what method, you know, it could be like a, a course reading primary text, which is, you know, one course that I'm doing this semester, um, reading primary text in uh, Chinese religions, in pre-modern Chinese religions, biography, hagiographies, ghost stories, um, mm-hmm. and so on. Or, you know, I would teach, a, I teach a, also teach a course on like modern um, Buddhism, Buddhism in the modern world. Um, but regardless of the time period uh, or the focus of the course, I really think that at the graduate level, it is absolutely necessary that students know about how we came to be who we are as a discipline. Um, why certain languages are taught, why certain texts receive more attention than others, whose Buddhist canon that we're talking about here, right? Every time when we say classical Buddhism is only studied at the universities, whose classical Buddhism are we talking about here? And are we trying to preserve here? So, so to me, it is only responsible 
to produce in the next generation of scholars. Um, I think this awareness for where we came from and as to where we are going to go collectively, I really think that, you know, I only believe in diversity. Mm-hmm. The more diverse our approaches, the healthier the discipline is going to be and, you know, the better. So it's not wrong then to take stock and say, wait a second, look back. Maybe we have not asked. In fact, I kind of want to make that a requirement. I want every single one of my graduate students, for instance, right, to be able to sit down um, and read and think about the history of the very field that we're in. And the same thing can be said about area studies. Uh Um, You know, how was Asian or East Asian studies started? And why are we doing it this way? And what are some of the assumptions? And importantly, who are the earliest scholars of, say, Chinese studies? Um, where did they get their funding from? And where did they get their funding from? I don't know. Is there, are these things you know, you have answers for? I don't think we should talk about yeah, this. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, most of the first generation of uh, area studies scholars uh, in, were, uh, you know, uh, were employed or get their funding from the state department during the, the Cold State War. Department. Uh-huh. Right. You need to learn yeah. the language of your enemies. Right. Before you can, you know, engage with them or defeat them. Right. Yeah. So, so then I think, you know, both East Asian studies or Asian studies and, you know, Buddhist studies, I mean, come with their own, I think, disciplinary baggage. Mm-hmm. The elephant in the room that we all need to be able to at least, you know, willing to acknowledge if not fully address um, in moving forward so that students do not privilege a certain approach um, or we do not reinforce or reproduce a certain conception um, about the field moving forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which comes back to that idea you had that beautiful phrase that teaching is both constructing and deconstructing that you need to break things up and then and we can always build. rebuild using the same bricks. Right? <laughs> we, we don't have to throw away, you know, I mean, uh, all the rocks and the bricks and the beams and so on and so forth. But but to me, you know, and, and it's it's not a one time thing. Uh, we keep challenging our assumptions. Um, we keep take, we, you know, repeatedly take them down. And then we repeatedly, I think, at least try to reconstruct. Yeah. And, and and to me, it's in the process of deconstructing and, and, and reconstructing that that. I hope that uh, uh, meanings emerge. Right. Well, on that note, that feels like a natural closure to our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time today to meet with us on The Circled Square. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rong Dao. You can find more information about Rong Dao's research and publications on her profile page at McGill University. We'll post a link in the show notes. Show notes and transcripts are available on our website at teachingbuddhism.net. If you've enjoyed this, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know over social media or email, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. A very special thanks to Dr. Betsy Moss for recording, editing, and producing this amazing podcast. This podcast comes out of the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening, and be well.